Welcome to the Token Security Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Justin McCarthy from StrongDM. And I'm Max Allenstahl from Google. And we're hair. We're hair. We do have a lot of hair. Our hair helps product teams ship more scale. <laughs> hey, this is Justin McCarthy from StrongDM. And this is Max Allenstahl from Google. And today we've got Daniel Leslie. He's the Director of Security Intelligence and IT Operations at Namely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of Thanks course. Thanks for joining us. So Namely is a, an HR platform. Yes. I've been in this space. I can talk to it. I've seen the problems firsthand. Here's how we were dealing with certain things. And plainly put, the HR, we, we know at the end of the day, like security boils down to people, right? In HR, they're the human resources department. So like it starts there. And over my observations of the past going on five years here at Namely, it's like I've been able to rapidly accelerate the program and get it in shape due to the partnership with our HR team, just saying, hey, here's what we need to do. And them just like buying into it mm-hmm. and helping push these initiatives, whether it's a policy change, whether if it's, you know, we need to do more training or, hey, we're spinning up another office. OK, here's what IT and security needs to do this. And they've just been readily supportive of being able to do these things and just enabling us do the common things well. So. That evokes, I, uh, I think it's almost like because your product is an HR product, you kind of have to take HR seriously. And then once you take HR seriously, then you can ask, what can HR do for InfoSec? <laughs> what can it do for security? And then yeah. it turns out there's a lot of helpful what communication and policy distribution and all that stuff that probably goes under that umbrella. And then taking it another level, traditionally security has been the forefront of the security engineers, the security architects, and the CISOs. And typically, it's very procedural, right? We kind of abstract ourselves away from the fundamental human element of the EQ, the emotional quotient, and making sure we're coming from that side of being empathetic, understanding the processes, and understanding that some things just need to take a little bit slower due to the nature of just human tendencies, and being more aware of that. And I think I've gotten a lot more awareness by working with our HR team on that front, which has made some of the things on the security front roll out a little bit smoother because I've had those conversations and they're already asking the questions and proposing the potential hiccups a little bit sooner and broadening the perspective with regard to organizational management. It sounds like you have developed some empathy and some sort of a team feeling with HR. I'm curious if it's actually gone the other way around. Have you been able to sort of recruit the HR folks into the fold and show them a security point of view? And any of them feeling sort of fun or excited about the security mission? Yeah, I can't say I've convinced them. I think they just already knew. <laughs> like, I think what they definitely gained an appreciation for is the structure. Because I bring like a structured analytical approach to looking at a particular problem, deconstructing it, and then looking at what are the obvious things that we should just be addressing right away. And then being able to communicate that to folks to get everyone on board. And not to say that I figured it out or it's perfect. Trust me, I've had other problems where I'm like, oh, wow, we definitely could have done better here. And I'm pretty sure they have a whole list of stuff they wish I was doing better. So, (laughs) But I think at the end of the day, it's been more of a collaborative approach, making sure as we are practicing what we preach, it's all in one HR platform, processing payroll, benefit brokerage services, performance reviews. And then of course, all of our clients' data is sitting in our system. Is our HR team doing the fundamentals as well? So that way, when we look at how we deal with certain features on the platform, it makes sense, right? It makes sense from a practical use case and the buy-in is just there organically. It's not forced. And then people have a stronger sense of ownership, right? Now they kind of like own it because they already co-signed that they wanted this. So they want to make sure it's successful as well. 
The other thing too, like on the empty side, I met Bruce Schneier a couple of weeks ago at a CISO dinner. He's just brilliant at weaving in real world examples to anchor his ideas or just like the points he's trying to make. And he's saying, you know, like we do these security trainings, we tell people not to click on things, right? But the internet is completely designed to click on things. And he's like looking at everyone. He says, you have to laugh at that. You're like, yeah, like I'm pretty sure I just literally said that last week to folks not to click on suspicious links. <laughs> but how do you deal with that? Like, how do you reconcile that people aspect of like, hey, we've designed something for you to do it. And then we're telling you not to do something the next day. So sounds like the grocery store, too. You know, one thing I think that would be helpful for the audience and for me is to learn a bit about just what is the scope of the Namely product. I think that'll give us a good idea of the kinds of topics that come up for you every day. The scope of the Namely product, first and foremost, is empowering organizations to make a better workplace, giving them a central point of focus with regards to communication, with regards to onboarding, with regards to performance reviews, goal setting, workflows for HR professionals for the day-to-day procedural stuff or quarterly or whatever the cadence is. Hiring, onboarding, promotion, things like that? Promotions, right? Being able to track the promotions and being able to just run the payroll all in one one spot. Exactly. And then benefits, right? Say you have a life-changing event. Before I was at Namely, I had to go to like two different sites to make an update to something, right? If I wanted to make a change, I'd log in here. If I wanted to look at my pay stub, I'd log in there. If I wanted to look at a performance thing, I had to log in another spot. So Namely centralizes that, which is initially what attracted me to join the organization was that vision. So And then it is a SaaS product, so it sounds like you're hosting not only your own company's data, but it sounds like the data that you're responsible for securing is actually the sum of all your customers. Yes, yep. There's an interesting platform security piece there, too. I don't know if that's within your realm around how are you choosing what technologies you're going to depend on to make sure that you're staying secure, right? Because it seems like you've got this mother load of really appealing PII between financials and addresses and birth dates and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're putting it somewhere and you're exposing yourself to vendor risk. Mm-hmm. That's something I'd love to touch on as well. Yep. Do you want me to answer right. that now or just... You want I to mean, yeah, you can jump into it now. Right. We're, we're going to sort of yeah. bounce around. But like, how do you handle the risk to you and your clients when you're working with the vendor, whether cloud provider or any other place is going to be able to touch your data? So I was very lucky to come in pretty early on with Namely. When I first started, there wasn't a security team, there wasn't an IT team. So, you know, I had the support to be able to design and architect IT systems that I knew were going to be mitigating risks out of the box. Don't even adopt the technologies that aren't forward thinking. So for example, network security, right? We wanted to make sure we got a network security, a networking platform that gave me the top five of the top 20 critical security controls. So out of the box, I knew just by turning this on and deploying it, we were covering those bases from day one. And then we're in AWS, and then AWS has a lot of native security monitoring, alerting, and just making sure we're leveraging those mechanisms appropriately and obviously mapping those to like our risk. What are the things we immediately need to worry about? It seemed like you definitely had to make some compromises there or some trade-offs, right? Of You're not going to be able to handle all of those top 20 right off the bat, especially in a small company that's hiring. Now you have a security team of one. Yep. So how did you figure out, what do I address right now? What do I punt for six months or 12 months? Or what's just not a big enough risk for me to spend the person energy? When I first started at Namely, there was maybe 50 or 60 people in the mandate came down from up top that, oh, we need to hire another 80 to 120 people in the next eight to 12 months. 
So <laughs> I was like, wow, there's no IT team. And so it was pretty much just being pragmatic, just being like, hey, we want to hire this many people. Let's get a ticketing system. Let's hire some IT personnel. Let's make sure the IT personnel that we hire come out of the box with these fundamental experience, security experiences and practices so that way they can help us hit the ground running pretty fast. So it was really a matter of looking at, one, what the immediate business needs were, point in time, and then also making sure that I was forecasting based on what I'm seeing with this trend or these immediate asks to map ourselves into a overall IT infrastructure that's going to enable us to grow and bake in those baseline security protocols. It sounds like you had to predict both what kind of capacity am I going to need in terms of human bandwidth for do I need a team of two or five or 20, but also what skills do you need? Because when you're growing that fast, you're kind of guessing what the skills six months from now, the rest of the company is going to turn to you. So when you're thinking about security in particular and securing all the aspects of that company in that growth phase, how did you figure out what for to predict, to get ahead of that growth? So to me, it was really straightforward hiring people who innately like to learn. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, you have to adapt, you have to evolve, and you have to have this mental flexibility to adjust and pivot as needed. So that was one of the key characteristics I looked for when hiring people. And it's definitely served well. All of the guys on the IT team, they've been here. They're all the original team members from like early 2015. So we've been doing well in that regard. And then even on the security side, and here's what I kind of like explain to some folks of how I <laughs> coined this phrase. I don't know, maybe someone else already coined it, but like there's a saying you have to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. I kind of like flip that over and say, well, you need to be a master at being a jack of all trades. What and does that mean? That means, yeah, you could be a jack of all trades and master of none, but you need to master the ability to be a jack of all trades, which means you need to be able to learn. Pick up new and skills quickly or adapt. Up, adapt. Because you can be a jack of all trades and just be not really good at that. You could say, oh, I'm just picking this up and, you know, like, <laughs> I'm talking about trades. Dabblers. Yeah, exactly, like the dabblers. So it's really coming, and it's a lot of pressure at the same time, right? Because, like, we just recently rolled out Istio to our production environment, you know, last quarter. And that was, like, a big deal. There was a lot of testing. There was a lot of things that were going wrong. There was a lot of deep-rooted bugs in that code base that the SRE team were solving and actually contributing uh, to that open source code and they got it working, but it's like that mental resilience to just stick with a problem until you get to that point or at the same time, not subscribing to the sunk cost fallacy and still mm-hmm. going down the path, even though you're failing and it's not working. You just are so committed and married to it. You can't see the fact that you should just give up and pivot and move on to something else. So it's like being able to have that kind of awareness um, yeah. of the reality of your situation, you know? Yeah, Totally. One thing that you mentioned, so it sounds like you went from that 50 to over 200 team pretty quickly. If you just had some advice for that team out there, which let's say they're about to undergo that growth, and let's say there's a new head of HR and there's a new head of security, what are the three pillars that those two folks, you'd say, you guys just got to agree to do these three things together. You have to be allies on these three points. What are those three points of that contract between HR and security that you're going to want to ensure is in place before that growth phase? a good question don't leave home without these three practices (laughs) my first thought is like well i don't know what services they're providing i don't know what regulatory requirements they have to adhere to and deal with but generically speaking they need to identify clearly the roles and responsibilities and being able to problem solve effectively it's important for example that the hr team has that fundamental partnership right they're coming together looking at 
their roles, identifying the immediate challenge for the company, and being disciplined but not rigid about how to address the challenges. So one, definitely policies. What are your onboarding policies? What are your offboarding policies? Because if you're growing fast, you just got to be tight. And HR has, first and foremost, they're leading the front lines on the onboarding and offboarding because they're the ones that are telling us who's starting. And they're the ones who are telling us who's leaving. And if they don't tell us someone left for a month, that's a problem, right? Especially if they're like an SRE. <laughs> this person pretty much has the keys to everything and know that they're no longer with us. Not definitely a fringe use case. Like people are going to notice when the, your site reliability engineer just doesn't show up for multiple weeks. But that's the first and foremost. Like make sure your policies are tight with regards to kind of like onboarding, offboarding, your acceptable use, and identifying your key risks. Doing like that, quote unquote, the pre-mortem. Like oh, what could go wrong? Hmm. And then making sure you're having those conversations and also checking egos at the door. That's one of the things that I've noticed too, is like when you're growing fast, people are feeling a lot of pressures. Like all of a sudden you, you came in to do this one job, two weeks later, you're doing five jobs. And then having that kind of like emotional intelligence to recognize when people are getting spread thin and not compounding those pressures on the individual. And then at the same time, again, being respectful of the roles and how people need to hold themselves accountable and how the teams need to hold each other accountable. So you're going to ask a question? Oh, I was thinking about how, as you're onboarding a lot of people, as you're growing quickly, you need to also educate those new employees on what to look out for, right? What are the risks? What are you, you know, information security really worried about that they, whether sales or marketing or software engineering or legal, can help you? So how do you communicate that in a way that informs them or makes them useful allies instead of either scaring them or just browbeating them? Like, don't ever click a link because not very useful advice. So that was like one of the first things that when I started with Name, we made a cadence with like for all the new hires, they attended an in-person training with IT and security. First, we need to onboard them with the equipment. But then on the security side, I wanted to make sure from day one, people understood the breadth and depth and the scope with regard to their role in relationship to Namely and the mission and really just looking people in the face and like creating that two-way street of a conversation of like, hey, here's what we're dealing with. Here's what our clients are expecting of us. And then also making sure people, new hires and team members continuously feel empowered to challenge assumptions about a process. Even if they suspect something is wrong, still bring it up, even if they're not sure. So just having that fundamental security awareness training in place was key. And of course, you know, HR has to enable that and approve that as we move forward and as we need to change it and pivot, getting that support. Yeah. I feel like everyone does a security awareness training, but most of them are terrible. So how do you make good security awareness training for those employees? Well, good is, that's definitely a relative thing. Like what's good to one person is maybe not to another. I think at the end of the day, you need to just make sure you're covering your bases, right? All of the common things that must be addressed for your space, for your risk profile. And then from there, you can figure out, all right, how can we make this more engaging? What can we do to elicit that sense of ownership? One of the things that we talk about in our role-specific trainings is the due care principle. At the end of the day, we want to make sure we're exercising due care. And what does that mean for you? Due care means slowing down, double-checking your work, challenging assumptions on the process. If you don't know, your team is immediately available to you to answer questions. If they don't know the answer, escalate to your manager or escalate to security. Like Making people just feel empowered that they're not going to be chastised for asking questions that they might think people will 
think they don't know what they're doing, right? Because a lot of times people are shy, they might feel embarrassed, they might be reluctant to ask a question out of fear of people perceiving them as incompetent or just not knowing yeah, their job. Psychological but, safety. It's, yeah, it's, exactly. That's the core thing. Whether you're safe, safe to fail. Yep, exactly. So I did stupid. a perfect, you hit the nail on the head. This is like the culture code. These are the three core things. Psychological safety, vulnerability, and purpose. You've got to make sure you're addressing those things. It just says as a manager, as a team, as an organization, because those are reinforcing variables in the day-to-day mindset of people. I'm curious, with all of that PII, you're managing crucial HR data for tons of clients, plus I'm assuming all of your employees. So you've got the most sought-after data. Do you have different gradations as you think about security rigor for your systems that are going to handle that PII versus like systems that are going to handle what snacks you ordered last week? Are there different realms that you're trying to treat from different security angles? Yes. Just like any other organization, we have our role-based access controls. We have systems that are high risk, the shared fate systems, and based on those risk profiles determines how they get managed and handled. Can you tell me more about those gradations? I mean, is it really just high risk, low risk? Or do you have something... Are there methods that you've had to use to make sure that those high-risk systems stay safe over time as you've refined it? Yeah, it's an ongoing process, right? The process never ends. As our technologies changes, as new features get pushed to production, it's a constant evaluation of how has this risk profile changed since the last time we looked at it last quarter? Or how has this system changed since we moved into this new data schema, right? And it's just a constant evaluation of that and following those principles of probability of something going wrong, severity if it did go wrong, and what are the mechanisms or the things available for us to mitigate. So nothing new, nothing particularly novel or original here, just run-of-the-mill risk management, data security practices. Now, you've got a company that's been growing really quickly over the last few years, so I'm guessing you're also weighing in on the design process as new features and new capabilities are being added to this suite of tools. So how do you help the folks on the product and the engineering side think about designing for security as they're building out new parts of the platform? So our tech leads, by and large, are the ones leading that forefront, and they come to security in the event that there is additional support needed or if it's not clear or there's something that might be a little bit more ambiguous we have a design doc process and within the design doc process, there's a section about security and privacy. It does this new feature impact or encroach on confidentiality, security and privacy. If so, let's look at how let's look at what innate controls already exist in the ecosystem. And if not, what are the things that are going to be included into this design doc to address those things? So it's really a matter of, just following the traditional software development lifecycle practices, but making sure security is on that checklist. And there's always room for improvement. I think every organization looks at these things and like wants to iterate and make sure they're adhering to best practices and demonstrating due care and diligence on these fronts. At least I hope organizations are taking that into consideration. You never know. No, 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 it's fine. We've solved it. We're done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Next problem. <laughs> <laughs> So since you guys are an HR platform, and since you have some respect and empathy for the HR role as a result, one area that comes to mind for me every time I think about that intersection between security and HR, actually, there's a couple of areas. One that's just really concrete and really practical is the role of background checks. So is that something that's sort of a pervasive and 
part of your process and uh, any new twist on that you can offer or just do them <laughs> definitely baked into our process we even have it as a part of our it workflow where if we know a new hire is coming in but yes this person's been hired pending background check clearance right so there's like a little checkbox that you see they're true or false yes passed or if not then it's going to get removed off the list so it's baked in so it knows and everyone has a linear line of sight of what that status is and it's each industry is different right like we have a high standard of diligence with regards to not only just the team members we want to hire in terms of their capacity their skills their emotional intelligence or their technical acumen but also general safety, right? Is this person coming in and not bringing in, I don't know, like some sort of thing that wouldn't reflect well on the brand of Namely, Mm -hmm. right? If someone comes in, it's like a conflict of interest that this person was charged with something and was pled guilty or whatever it might be. Like that scenario, we got to think about those things. Let's say for someone was just like committed fraud or they did like insider trading. This person went to jail for insider trading and here they are working at a tech company that is hosting data for other tech companies, right? Let's say, for example, we have a client that's getting bought out by another company. That person might be privy to it, right? Coming up with like a scenario that I would think through to explain why this would be relevant to an HR person. Like, hey, this might be a risk for us because, or whatever. And typically I don't get involved in like that level of stuff. HR usually deals with it and they have their protocol. But those are the sort of conversations I would have to explain scenarios that are why these questions are relevant. Have there been new steps in that vetting process or validating process that you wanted to add where you really needed to work hard to get buy-in from other stakeholders, whether from HR or elsewhere? Mm -mm. Like a security thing that you thought the company needs, but other people weren't quite seeing it until you laid the story out differently or provided some more evidence. I'm trying to think. A lot of times I have to provide context why we should introduce a feature or a process or something along those lines. But typically, the, I think I've just been pretty lucky that folks just get it. You know, it's kind of like, hey, like, I think we should be doing this. Here's why. And sometimes it's not even coming from me. Sometimes people come to me because they want me to so help <laughs> give them support. They want me to co-sign something that they're pushing for, whether it's just a process change. Mm-hmm. Right? They say, hey, this process is just inefficient. And, but also, here's the additional risk that we're incurring by having these four extra steps. Mm. What do you think, Daniel? And I'll look at that and be like, yeah, that makes sense. It's like, all right, they want the security intelligence team to weigh in and add that other push from that angle. So it's been a two-way street, like me coming unilaterally from the security side and then other business units coming to me looking for additional support on things that they want to prioritize on a process change or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And that's great. That's the sort of ecosystem you want. In your Very collaborative, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly, because you have other people you have folks who are dealing with the stuff day to day, challenging the assumptions of a process, recognizing a potential risk, feeling empowered to raise that up to their managers or to the engineering team or the product team and to the security team. And, you know, it helps drive progress and continuous improvement. Relevant yeah. continuous improvement too, because sometimes you can have continuous improvement and totally go in the wrong direction. It's like, hey, we continuously improved our way off the cliff. No, we want to continuously improve our way in a direction that keeps us innovative and and relevant to the industry and to our clients. Yeah. So back to the relationship with HR, one area that I know I always think about is, especially in a growth phase, that candidate experience and that new hire experience. So from interviewing with the company, through getting the offer, through onboarding. So I feel like I've spent a lot of hours working on that in my career. Where I've spent far less time and attention 
is the other side of that. And I'm not talking about separations where this person went into retirement. I'm talking about the uncomfortable separations. So when you have a termination, there is a spectrum of ways that you can do it where that person feels just absolutely burned or can kind of understand maybe why it needed to happen. And that is, there's absolutely an intersection with security there. So any wisdom you can offer about really mastery of that unfortunate but necessary part of life. You know, that's always a tough part of the job. And like you said, necessary at times, and some people get it. And my thing, at least from the security mindset, is that disgruntled employee who, like you said, does feel like they were treated unfairly, does feel like they have a grudge. And bottom line to me is just being respectful to the end of the day and being transparent. And also your IT and security team having a rigorous checklist for offboarding to make sure that, you know, if that time comes, you have a high degree of confidence that you've sorted out all of the potential access that that person could, if they do want to be disgruntled and do something damaging, they can't. And that's what it really boils down to. Again, respecting people, making sure your offboarding process is tight. Single sign-on has been great for that. Because like majority of your stuff is single sign-on. You just turn off your single sign-on access. The other thing too is also sessions. And I've mentioned this to another colleague. I shared our checklist with them. Say, hey, here's what you need to do. Here's how to quantify it. It shows you what percentage of the checklist is complete. And then there's a thing on there that says kill sessions. He's like, what do you mean kill sessions? Like, well, if you're logged into your browser, that session still might be valid even though you turned it off in one login, unless there's a mechanism or Okta that is going to go in and kill the session automatically. I don't know for sure. I've tested it and it didn't. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, wait a minute, guys, we're adding this new step to the checklist. And we did this like years ago. So that would be kind of like the one tidbit I would add is like to double check the sessions are also killed as well. When you're thinking about stuff you want to add, whether it's to that checklist or to onboarding process, how do you prioritize? Because I'm sure you have way more things you'd like to do for your team than you actually have the bandwidth to accomplish. How do we prioritize? What you're going to add or what you're going to develop. In a checklist in general? In security in general, like for that continuous improvement you're talking about, right? Ah. There's still so many options for what could you do tomorrow, right? Or, you know, next week. Great question. And there's two ways I've gone about this over the past several years. And something that I've used when I was working at a healthcare tech company where we developed class one and class two medical devices. So FDA was really involved in making sure our processes were tight, but it's just the frameworks. Like, for example, for like, we use the NIST cybersecurity framework and it has like the five categories knowing your posture in each one of those categories like if you're for identify on a scale of one through ten where do you rate yourself how do you know you don't need to spend too much more resources focusing on identify and then protect right so basically i look at each one of those categories say all right which one is needs more work all right so we obviously see that this area this particular core area from the framework needs more work What are the things that we could be doing this quarter or this year to focus in on that? And then just map it. Say, hey, we wanted to beef up this aspect of our capability. Here's what we've done. Oh, you want to know why we wanted to spend time focusing on this aspect of our capability? Well, because when we did our assessment in the framework, this was kind of the weaker one out of all of the rest. And then even for the top 20 critical security controls, same thing for number one, there's like 10 different things you can do to meet that criteria. Give yourself a grade, like out of the 10, are you doing five or six, right? And then you give, you have a letter grade for each one of those categories. And then it's simply a matter of looking at that metric and focusing your attention appropriately. Nothing novel, just stuff that I hope security professionals out there are doing and the risk 
professionals are doing anyway, but, you know, it's served us and it's doing its job. One thing that, of course, is a normal thing on a technology team, is a normal thing on an IT team, is just the reliance on ticketing. So you mentioned it before. That's something that actually the experience with and the reliance on ticketing is pervasive in the tech teams and maybe in some other teams folks aren't accustomed to sort of living their whole lives <laughs> inside yeah. of tickets. Have you had any, I don't know, pleasant or maybe not yet perfect experiences trying to sort of preach the idea of structure and traceability maybe and just sort of commingling some of these, let's say, security checklists with some other more pure HR checklists? Give me some context on that. So I'm trying to... Sure. So you're onboarding me to the team. Yeah. Makes sense that there's some training that I'm going through. Yep. And makes sense that that would exist in some document that's controlled by HR, let's say. But then if there's some implication, um, if I need a VPN account created or something like that, that may be handed out to another sub-team or something. And the way you might do that is with a JIRA ticket, because that's sort of the ticketing scheme that that team speaks. So how do you connect the traceability of these activities, how do you connect it together so that you can actually span some of these actions across teams? So how do I take a a request and have traceability around the approval, the appropriateness of the access is what you're saying? Yeah. I just know that's something that, like I said, it's very familiar to folks from certain backgrounds and the idea that essentially like you always need a ticket to talk to me or follow up on a topic might be new to some other folks. I need a ticket to do anything. Yeah, pretty much same at Namely. I'm trying to figure out, so for traceability, I think reflecting back when we first rolled out our ticketing system back in early 2015, the first thing I did was we did a mind map. So we went to the whiteboard and just mapped out all the core categories, all the subcategories, before we even started configuring the ticketing system to make sure it just made sense. And then we have that as like a change control doc. If something we need to add, a new system to it. We're like, hey, let's update the master mind map of our ticketing system categories and keep it updated that way. And then how we, from a traceability standpoint, it ends up just boiling down to the reporting. Like, does your ticketing system come with the robust reporting you need to demonstrate that sort of traceability? And if so, you better hope your categories got mapped effectively or that report isn't really going to make much sense or it's going to make you look really bad. So I think it's important just to do the upfront work and just scoping out what categories are require approval versus ones that don't require approval. Which ones can you drop, create some macros for so your team can simply just drop the macro on it and move on to the next ticket. One thing that has served pretty well over the past couple of years is how the security team is able to drill into our metrics. Like I'm able to report or the team is able to report on every single incident that we're aware of that has come up. And we're able to see which system, which team, the general sequence of events due to the way we've set up our reporting structure in collaboration with our legal team and in alignment with our incident response. So I can look at if someone says, hey, what were the biggest problems that popped up for you during 2018? I could go in and run a report and say, hey, here's where we've seen some of the errors, most of the errors this year during 2018. All right, now that we see that, what are we doing about it to bring that number down going into 2019? And that's served very well from respect to being able to generate a report for our board of directors. Those of you who are New York-based, the Department of Financial Services for New York passed legislation a couple of years ago requiring that you write a report to the board of directors, demonstrating the material risks to your organization, any findings or things that would be immediately relevant within the scope of operating a business such as namely that is processing a billion plus dollars a month. And having that granularity 
baked into our ticketing system has served really well of being able to demonstrate how we focus attention, where we need to double down, where we're doing well. And then at the same time, traceability, back to your point, like how do you have traceability around how these things are started and how they're being dealt with? Can you talk a little bit more about that reporting upwards? When you're delivering summary information to folks who are not security experts, mm-hmm. what do you find is helpful to paint a good picture, but also not either alarm them or get them suddenly breathing down your neck to fix everything that you've called out as wrong? Context. And at the end of the day, it's like you have to be able to illustrate how you've come to your conclusions, mm-hmm. right? Here's why I'm saying this. And then walk the reader through or the audience through that process in a way that removes doubt. I'm pretty sure you and other folk in the security, we're, we're always probably scrutinizing, like, how do you know this? Mm. You know, the whole trust but verify. So making sure that the process and the, the conclusions that you present can be reproduced. And then in the event that folks aren't technical, I don't really talk about technical things in that kind of report, right? Mm-hmm. It's pretty high level. It's enough of a description to say, hey, for data leak prevention, here's what we've done. Data leak prevention is going to mitigate the risk of data leaking out or sensitive data being mishandled. And these are the mechanisms we have in place for that or for whatever the scenario might be, like just being able to walk through the thinking process in a pithy way at the same time, right? Because you can go and write a book on data leak prevention and no one's going to read it <laughs> or they're just going to come to the same conclusion that, that everyone else already knew anyways. So, but <laughs> you put your board of directors to sleep and then, you know. Yeah, exactly. And then it's not going to be relevant. So for the report I had to do is just kind of like, hey, here are the relevant sections that the legislation is saying we have to address or communicate to the board. Here's what we've done. Here's how we're dealing with it. Quick summary. And then recommendations. Hey, here's what happened last year. Here's what we did about it since last year. Here's where we got better. Oh, further recommendations. Quick, pithy bullet points in metrics. Say, hey, we had over the past four years, five years, we've had penetration tests by third party. Look at how our, our ratings have gone down over the past several years. Or it might be the case where, hey, your ratings have gone up. Why the heck is that going up? And being able to talk to those points as needed. Cool. As you look forward, is there anything on your roadmap that is becoming possible because of it's either enabled by some new average skill in the workforce or it's enabled by some change in technology? Is there something you're looking forward to in 2019 and beyond? Whew. What am I looking forward to from like a skill or like a technology? Yeah, like is there a new practice or a new philosophy that you're imagining? Like if we can complete the rollout of this idea, then things are going to feel different to me in 2020. I don't know. So one of the things from like an authentication standpoint, there's like that web off in. Oh, yes. That? We've, done that, we've done an episode on that. Oh, I must have missed that one. But that's something I'm excited to seeing how that really starts to matriculate and become like a norm. So excited about that. There's so much out there. Like I'm trying not to like be too vendor specific here, you know, but yeah, I have to think about that a little bit more. All right. Every topic that I sort of scratched on my list is crossed off now. So Max, do you have any other high level ones you want to I think the only other question I was thinking about, so as you're working on expanding on partnering with these other orgs within, namely, how do you go about balancing security and usability? Because there's a lot of pull in both ways. And I'm guessing a lot of the times your HR colleagues are trying to make things either as smooth or as fast as possible. So my approach to balancing security and usability Nothing unique here, right? It's like... Mm-hmm. No, but I want your we, perspective. Yeah, so my perspective is like, are we addressing the risk? And is the risk high enough that warrants the additional loss of usability or the extra friction? If so, 
so be it. One of the things I've said to some folks, like, hey, like, if, maybe if you don't like this or if this is, you feel like it's too much pressure, this might not be the right field for you. <laughs> right? Like, you shouldn't take a job that you just can't deal with some of the pressures. I'm not going to be a firefighter and then be mad that I have to, like, go and run into a building or, like, deal with a problem, right? Like, that's part of the job. So I think, at least for me, the folks that I've been working with over the past years have just been realistic and practical. And like in the cases where we were splitting hairs, it's just coming to a common understanding of like, all right, what's going to be in the best interest of the clients? And then what's going to be in the best interest of the team and the org, letting that run its course. Nothing special there about <laughs> balancing, <laughs> balancing that. I wish I had like a true, like novel idea on how to solve that or like, hey, here's the formula, but pretty straightforward. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate getting your opinion on how to navigate these security challenges in a small and growing company and what you're thinking about. It's great. No problem. Thanks for inviting me again and looking forward to hearing some of the other podcasts coming down the pipeline as well. Oh yeah, we got lots of them. Mm-hmm.